Shabbat Shalom. Thanks to everyone who's joined us in the Rumagog and are joining us in the Zumagog and uh, to make one congregation celebrating Shabbat together. My remarks today are not really from my own argument. They are from the argument of the former chair of the Department of Religious Studies at Stanford, my former doctoral advisor, and afterward the, the immediate past chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, Arnold Eisen. But um, several of the, the glosses are mine, but the structure of the argument is his. In his essay in 2015 called Joseph Hanukkah and the Dilemmas of Assimilation, Dr. Eisen writes, ruminations about assimilation come naturally to Jews in North America during the winter holiday season. How much should a parent insist that Hanukkah is part of a public school celebration that gives students a heavy dose of Christmas? How often should one remind store clerks or others who innocently ask our children which gifts they hope to receive from Santa? that there are other faiths observed in our communities and other holidays. Intermarried couples are familiar with conversations about having a Christmas tree at home or going to midnight mass or allowing their kids to open gifts Christmas morning under the tree, their home or in their cousin's home. The Hanukkah story is the perfect stimulus for such reflections, especially when we read, as some historians do, and today it's common to say, do you know the real story of Hanukkah? And if anyone's opened up any Jewish publication the past 20 years, we all know the real story of Hanukkah because people become enlightened to it when they get older, which is that it is not a story of a miracle, but as in the books of Maccabees, particularly the first and second books of Maccabees, the miracle, the, the story of Hanukkah is, of course, about zealous Jews who attack assimilating Hellenized Jews who have a hatred for the cosmopolitan Jews. And so their enemy is not only the Hellenizers, but the Jewish Hellenized. So as historians see it, Dr. Eisen writes, it's a dispute among Jews themselves over which Greek customs are acceptable and which cross the line to assimilation or apostasy. How much distinctiveness should Jews maintain in a society and culture like ours that offers unprecedented opportunity and freedom? How much distinctiveness can we maintain without putting our acceptance in jeopardy? Perhaps the most difficult question How much distinctiveness can Jews afford to sacrifice without losing Jewish children and grandchildren to the ways and identity of the majority? In this parasha, this is me, we remember that Joseph becomes unrecognizable to his own brothers. Why? Is it it the language he uses, the accent that he has for that language? Is it his dress, as is suggested? Is it his facial demeanor or his, his, the, what kind of beard and facial beard he has? Is it his power? They couldn't be, is it that he seems to be an Egyptian? These are a lot of the questions that I've had growing up with my relatives we think about today. Is it the way we look? Do we not sound like a Jew? Do we not speak the right language? Um, do we look different? Would our own ancestors recognize us? But do we remember that for all of that, the Egyptians won't eat with Joseph. He may be powerful, but he's still that upstart Hebrew slave, as the Marx brothers used to celebrate in their ruminations about what it means to be an Jew in America. You upstart, they would say to Groucho. Back to Eisen. Joseph, the most important figure among the first generation of the children of Israel, struggles with a version of these same dilemmas as he rises from one prison pen after another to the height of power at the court of Pharaoh. And of all the dramatic moments in the gripping story of his reconciliation with the brothers who once betrayed him, none is more poignant 
And when Pharaoh tells Joseph that he will have absolute power limited only by Pharaoh himself, the astute ruler has taken the measure of Joseph and realized immediately that this shrewd and perceptive Hebrew was perfectly suited to the nasty work of gathering up all the grain of Egypt during the seven years of plenty and selling it back to them during the seven years of famine, and thus thoroughly enrich Pharaoh and enslave the people to him. And so he immediately gives Joseph two gifts that can be read as heart-wrenching examples of the price that Joseph pays for that appointment. Joseph will have an Egyptian name, Safnat Panea, sustainer of life. And he will have an Egyptian wife, Asnat, the daughter of the priest Potiphera. How do we read this narrative? Back to me. We wonder at the very beginning of the Joseph narrative whether Joseph is precocious, directed toward being raised up above others, desirous of his destiny, or whether quite the opposite. He's the ultimate example that life doesn't care about your desires, that life happens to you regardless. His is a topsy-turvy life of being raised up and thrown down in pits, the ultimate example of someone whose desires don't matter, that his gift and ours to learn from is to manage the effects, doing the best we can in a world in which so much is out of our control and still live out your mission. And it's a world that tosses a Jew around from elevation to pit to elevation to pit to elevation, as we've experienced in America. Now in Miketz, we again wonder, did Joseph shrewdly seek the power he wields? What element was freely chosen or not? And so we notice, as Eisen directs our attention to, that the text indicates that it was not Joseph who chooses his wife or his name or really his job. Back to Eisen. The story that follows reads differently because of the moves of the king to forcibly integrate Joseph into Egyptian society and culture. Joseph himself testifies to the pain of his situation as the highest outsider of the land in verses 50 through 52. It says, two sons were born to him by Asnat, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. All things Joseph has no control of, but notice that he has control over the name of his children. Joseph called the firstborn Menashe because, quote, God has made me completely forget my hardship and the house of my father. Did he forget the trauma that he experienced in the house of his father? Or has he been distanced from the house of his father? He's trying to bring them all back. And Joseph called the second son Ephraim because, quote, God has made me fertile in the land of my affliction. Egypt is the land of his affliction. I thought he was, he was what we all want. He wants president someday. It's possible. Just Joe Lieberman was the wrong one. We will soon learn that he has not forgotten the pain suffered in his father's house. When the brothers arrive to purchase grain, he at once recognizes them, see them bow before him. He remembers the dream in which they symbolically had done just that. And he wishes, his question, is my father still alive? So it's Pharaoh who changes Joseph's name. It's Pharaoh who chooses Joseph's wife. It's Pharaoh who puts Joseph in charge of a scheme to both save and enslave. It is Pharaoh who has made Joseph unrecognizable to his own kind. Just did Joseph really want it all along? The one thing Joseph chooses are the names of his sons. And we hear how that turns out. Is it wonderful that Joseph forgets the house of his father? Maybe yes. And maybe no. And Ephraim, God has made me fertile in the land of my affliction. Not exactly, exactly a ringing endorsement. The one who just can't wait to get into the Egyptian country club doesn't say such a thing. 
What's the simple narrative we apply to ourselves about assimilation as this question is raised for us during every Parshat Miketz and every Hanukkah? Yep, Jews desired assimilation as the price to succeed in American society. My uncles lived to be accepted into the mainline country clubs that were closed to Jews. We got our nose jobs. We changed our names. We copied Goyish ways. Didn't we just live to be like a Goy? Today, this narrative fills the opinion pages of some of the Israeli newspapers I follow every day that are directed toward diaspora. American Jews have chosen to sell out and are not only irrelevant to the future of Israel and of Judaism, but likely a thorn in its side. But is their narrative true? So this week, I was reading sections of Mel Brooks's new memoir. I was hoping it'd be a better read. I love Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, hearing about all the guys, said Caesar. And, you know, the first thing that irritated me is, why did he have to change his name? His name obviously wasn't Mel Brooks. And then I thought back, you know, our name was Cohane. It wasn't Kane, and it got changed. And I think of all the actors who still today, Scarlett Johansson has to be the, you know, we, we just, everyone changes their name. And I was so angry about it. They're so anxious to assimilate. And listen to me judging Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, people who brought Judaism, Borschfeld humor, who were always known as the Jew, the dirt, you know, Milton Berle, the do it, the, the, oh, we're going to have that Jewish comic on. It's Lawrence Welk after all. Do we really need to bring them? Like, I'm here judging that they wanted to assimilate. Did they? Was it the price of admission? Here I am judging. those who, th- These days, everything that you can stream pretty much that's not rated R, actually, I guess half of them are rated R now, are superhero, right, things. And the Marvel Universe, they're all created by Jews. You know, a famous article in recent lecture through JTS, a, uh, you know, Superman was circ- circumcised. Um, they all changed their names. So people don't know that, you know, that, that Superman was created... Uh, Captain America was created by Jews in the first edition. The first issue was about the fact that America needed to go to war against Hitler in Europe, even though the mood of the country was against it. And it was incredibly successful and sold a million copies. And here I am judging. Why did those guys have to change their names so no one wrote, knows that Captain America was created by a Jew? I think I've been judging too soon. And our narrative about our own assimilation has been oversimplified. Look at Joseph. He's raised up, but the price is that he's stripped of his connection to his history and is successful, but also despised. But look what he accomplishes. He rescues the Israelite people. The true story of Hanukkah, we all know, is that the Maccabees were zealots fighting the assimilation of Hellenizing Jews as much as they were fighting the Hellenizers. And so we're uncomfortable every year, wondering whether we would be considered the villain or the hero. Eisen writes, consider the irony. The survival of the children of Israel is secured by this child of Israel, who married to the daughter of a Gentile priest, brings his family down to Egypt, where he and they loyally serve the Pharaoh. The survival of the children of Israel in a later generation, only a couple partial away, will be secured by another Israelite, this one from the tribe of Levi, who also married to the daughter of a Gentile priest who will lead a rebellion that liberates his people from Pharaoh's slavery. Had Joseph and Moses not been at home in Pharaoh's court, wise in the ways of ministers and kings, skillful at magic arts beyond the capacity of Pharaoh's magicians, and gifted with the right word at the right time, and inside knowledge of the Egyptian society and culture, and had they not, despite all this, retained a strong sense of divine mission and purpose, they would not have been able to perform the redemptive tasks assigned them. We might say, in contemporary terms, that a certain measure of assimilation was required for their success as was a measure of resistance to assimilation. And contemporary Jews know from experience that the balance is difficult to calibrate 
correctly. I think I have spent too much time judging myself and I think we spent too much time in the simplified narrative. We're in the in-between. We are both desperately and beautifully doing Devekas, cleaving to Torah, cleaving to the mission and connection of the Jewish people to the house of our fathers and mothers and great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers. And yes, we want to be accepted into society. And we have made many compromises, not always chosen to be so. And we are a key part of the Jewish people. And I for myself, and I know after I've died, I will be forgotten quickly and forever. And I'm proud that I turn my spade, I turn my shovel in conservative Judaism, connecting ourselves to Torah and to Judaism and to Israel, and at the same time being, yes, modern, being knowledgeable in the ways of the court and saving our people here on a day that we're also celebrating Marcus. I am just reminded, and I close with a saying, and I don't know where it's from, that when we're a teenager in our teen years in our early 20s, we think everyone is thinking about us, and what do they think about us? And then when we reach the age of 40, we realize people really aren't thinking about us. And if they are, I don't care what they're thinking anyway because I'm comfortable in my own skin. Shabbat shalom.